On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. Harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the winner of this year's Templeton Prize, Dr. Jane Goodall, whose discoveries changed our understanding of humanity's role in an interconnected world at templeton.org. The Reverend Jennifer Bailey is a gentle source of my confidence in the human future. She's a young pastor and social innovator, wise before her time. As healers of the healers, she and her colleagues support people to sustain themselves, their communities, and social movements from a place of spirit, creativity, and courage. Across these last years, I've also come to love Jen as a friend of a different generation. She and I both believe that cross-generational accompaniment is essential to meeting this century's callings towards belonging and healing. We draw each other out this hour in that spirit. There is something about the fact that we are mortal, that there is a definite beginning, middle, and end to the arc of our lives that is at once humbling, but it also frees up so much. Yeah. It does allow us to have this generational view that like, well, I'm here and one day I'm not going to be here. <laughs> and, and so I can do what I can do during this time. And at the same time, I can pass on that which came to me as seed, as blossom, and let somebody else plant it and tend to it. And that is so freeing. Yeah. Um, and if I could go back and talk to a younger version of myself, I would say it's okay to not build the whole house. It's okay to lay a foundation yeah. and be satisfied in that. Yeah, but it's so great that you can say that to your younger self when you're still only in your 30s. <laughs> That's kind of evolutionary progress in my mind. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Back in 2016, when I first experienced Jen Bailey, she reminded me that the biblical word for apocalypse does not mean, as we throw it around culturally, a cataclysm. It means an uncovering. The organization she founded and leads, Faith Matters Network, has stepped in across the societal ruptures that have been uncovered in our time. She's also on the staff of the Greater Bethel AME Church in Nashville, where she lives. And this exchange came about in partnership with Encore.org, with Jen, who invited it, taking the lead from the first. Well, you are one of my favorite conversation partners, so mm -hmm. I feel so blessed to be able to be in conversation with you um, today. And, you know, I was thinking about this concept of intergenerational friendship. And I remember the first place I started thinking about it was on the On Being Studio couches in <laughs> Minneapolis. And I think it was 2018 when I was yeah. a fellow. And I remember we were all gathered around and you were telling us the story mm. of yourself as a young um, person. And I think it was West Germany. Mm -hmm. um, and the role as during that, that part of your life when you were doing diplomacy and international relations of intergenerational friendships of, for grounding you. And so I wonder yeah. if you might tell us a story about that time, go back to when you were a young person and oh, the value of those friendships for you. That's such a good question. I just want to say 
one thing I remember about you on that couch is that you also took naps, and I realized how tired you were. <laughs> and I think actually that that's related to what we're going to talk about because I've watched yeah. you, I've watched you really um, lean into the need for for care, for self care, for care for the caregivers, <laughs> um, and just think about how between now and two thousand eighteen. How the unimaginably has, the yeah. world has shifted on its axis. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember talking about intergenerational, but in Berlin, but it's true that for some reason, I always sought out, I always had a couple of much older friends. And in Berlin, I had two women. One was a journalist, and she was in her 60s when I met her, you know, and I knew her through her 70s, and another woman. And they were just so, so important to me. Um, it's a long time ago, but that word grounding, mm-hmm. that word grounding is what comes to me. Mm-hmm. I've, I've thought a lot also even just kind of in the conversations I've had with the show. And as I get older, I think there is actually something about getting older that you just inhabit your body ever more fully And I think that that's something that children are attracted to in grandparents and that we are attracted to in older people. And, you know, when you're in the middle of life and, you know, you're in that now, you're childbearing, like you're in your body in certain ways incredibly. But there's a presence that you just, it's not something you can talk about. It's not something conscious. Mm. It's just, oh, this person is on the earth fully and there's something so comforting about getting close to that mm. i can i can as somebody who is a new mom who feels like my body a new mom who's breastfeeding yeah. um in the season i very much feel like my body is not my own yes. and i have had i think it's you're right um my attraction to hanging out with and being in the presence of either virtually or in person with older mm-hmm. folks is sort of that like magnetic attraction of wanting to be around in particular women um, yeah. who who do seem to inhabit and carry their bodies in a in a different way. Um, I'm learning things about my body. I didn't know. Oh, I didn't know it could produce and nourish and right. <laughs> feed. I didn't know. You didn't know um, it was made for this. I mean, you knew it, yes. but you didn't know it. No, exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm also now about to hit my mid thirties. And so mm-hmm. I've, I've heard that your body starts aching in a different way. <laughs> and, I don't know. Um, Do yoga. I think, I think that's a self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy that one can circumvent. Okay. I will embrace that because I've started to discover uh, joints and bones and muscles. I didn't know yeah. existed lifting up max my, well, my baby boys. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know another thing that has been on my mind. So I, one of the things I love talking to you about is just what's been on my mind lately. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think emerging out of the past four years, I've really been holding closely to this famous uh, prayer that was made upon the sainthood of Oscar Romero. And it says, mm-hmm. and begins with the line, it helps sometimes to take a long view. Mm-hmm. And coming out of what has felt like the chaos, confusion, the grief that was 2020, I found myself being attracted to those who have a long view of time, Mm -hmm. particularly elders and those who are older. And I wonder, particularly 
in a time where everything seems urgent, what the role of pause and breath Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. in this season um, to help us gear up for whatever this transformational moment we find ourselves in is. And so I'm curious if there have been spaces or places in your own life where taking a long view of time has been helpful. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, that's something I've really, really just walked with. I think part of that, for me, it's very much a spiritual view of time. It's a biblical view of time. It's the long arc of the moral universe view of time. Right. And it's, a, it's, in fact, a scientific view of time. Mm. But I think, for me, it actually comes from my geopolitical youth because I think it really got planted in me from living in divided Berlin in the 1980s mm. on what really was the fault line of the world mm-hmm. at that time, the great drama that seemed like, you know, that it might spell the end of humanity at that time. There's ways in which we are now reckoning with things that didn't get reckoned with in the 20th century because yeah. of the Cold War. So I see I see the scope of the Cold War. I think our the excesses of American capitalism, our I think the Cold War also was when we started to equate the market with moral good, Mm. with moral superiority. And that's so deep. That's so in our DNA now. So so I I see the Cold War in all of its dimensions, but to have had the experience to live on its fault line, we all knew things were shifting. There was a fluidity that was new, but nobody would have predicted that the wall would fall so quickly and that the world would upend and change so transformatively. So I feel like I live through this moment of experiencing a global before and after. Mm. But what I see, what has shaped me is seeing how much we didn't see, like mm. seeing how much was possible that we weren't taking in. And I mean, I mean, really all of us. So, so yeah, so I take a generational view of time, but that also means that I understand that time doesn't work on our schedules. It doesn't work like this bully that we treat it as. Real transformation is generations in the making, and yet it can, yet things can also happen quickly, right? It's moving right. quickly and slowly at the same time. I'm curious if for you, this 2020 and beyond feels like a before and an after. Mm. Yeah. As you were talking, I was thinking about what what are my Berlin wall moments throughout the course of my lifetime, because I have no conscious memory of the wall falling. (laughs) I think maybe it was one or two years old. I was going to say, were you even alive? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And when I think about sort of the before and after moments that have defined the arc of my life as a millennial, and now as I'm settling into that an in-between generation space, which has been really beautiful in many ways. I think about 9-11 as one of those moments Mm -hmm. for me as a young person that sort of shifted my consciousness and awareness around um, the interconnectivity of of global um, dynamics. Some of those things that were not quite uncovered um, coming to bear was 9-11 was my first week of high school. So I just, there was a distinct before and after, um, alongside, you know, 
what a time to have <laughs> that kind of before and after mm-hmm. as a as a young person emerging into adolescence. I think about um, the uprisings in Ferguson in 2014 mm-hmm. as a before and after moment of reckoning with racial justice issues. And now 2020 very much feels like a before and after moment, both because of what it revealed about the common fate of humanity as we were all battling this common um, enemy in the coronavirus Mm -hmm. and the death of George Floyd and just seeing from that moment in 2014 to the moment in 2020, the shift. And so to your point, well, it very much feels like that moment was generations in the making um, Mm -hmm. that the response, the uprisings were generations in the making the shift from the term Black Lives Matter being controversial in 2014 to it being chanted globally in 2020 yeah. was just such a tremendous, not just shift, but like worldview change that I, I saw unfolding before me. And and so I, I find myself with a great deal of curiosity, both about what we're learning on the other end of 2020 mm-hmm. and the the apocalypse is yet to come, the uncoverings yet to come. Because I do think as the world is slowly beginning to open back up in certain places, certainly here in the United States, there are so many things that we aren't thinking about quite yet. I think we've rushed to a space in some places of celebration, forgetting that over a half a million people are have perished or are no longer with us, that there are families mm-hmm. that don't have parents and um, children who are going to have to make their way in the world. And uh, uh, as a new mom who welcomed a 2020 baby, mm-hmm. I'm so curious the impact of being sheltered in place with Max for the first four or five months of his life. My, my baby who's now nine months old, the fact that for the first, you know, nine months, he mostly saw people with masks. (laughs) I think eyes have not seen and ears have not heard the the long-term impact of that on the kids who were born last year. And so um, I'm entering into this next phase on the other side with a great deal of curiosity and perhaps tenderness, Mm -hmm. um, wanting to hold each other tight, because I think that there are there are ramifications of last year that have yet to be felt. And that can be scary for folks. Yeah. The fear of the unknown is very real. So I'm, I'm sitting with all of that in, in my body right now. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, exploring belonging and healing in the world ahead in cross-generational friendship with Reverend Jen Bailey. I've always found you so wise about sitting, attending to the breadth of experience, you are a pastor, right? It's a it's a pastoral sensibility. I mean, I feel like that question that you asked me, I feel you really embody of seeing that the work that is upon us has been long in coming and it is 
it is the work of the rest of our life. I mean, I it's funny. I think I remember when I first was studying the Bible when I went to seminary because I wasn't religious for a while, but reading the story of how Moses doesn't make it to the Promised Land and thinking that that was such a wrong ending. Okay, I mean, I was just like, why did they? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. And now that I'm sixty, and we're in this world we're in, I feel that so clearly. At what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, I will not see, you know, the end, the final fruits of, and that is fine, and and it's the way of things. But but I'm also partly able to just embrace that because I. I see you, right? I, and so mm. I want to, if part of what I have to do is figure out how I can walk alongside you and be of service. Yeah, that, I'm sitting on that reflection of the image of Moses not entering the <laughs> promised land. And um, and I think an 18-year-old Jen would, like you, have been very dissatisfied by that conclusion yeah. to the story. Um, like, you mean I did all this work and right. I can't even see it? Right. I can't see it? Um, or I can't enter it, I should say. Um, and I've been reflecting a lot lately about what is it or what has it been about my life experience that has helped me see this long view at a relatively young age. Yeah, And I think... I think it's been my proximity to death. Um, having lost my mom at 28 when she was 63 years old, having lost three or four friends, all women of color to suicide in my early twenties, mm -hmm. two weeks after I gave birth, one of my best friends from high school died unexpectedly. Um, and experience of walking with my mom her last few months uh, on earth when she was after battling cancer for 14 years and walking with her and alongside her and feeding her and changing her and caring for her and loving for her and being in the, the room when she transitioned. I think those experiences throughout the course of my life have allowed me an insight into just how precious and finite and short life can be. Mm -hmm. And so the question then becomes, if our time on earth is not guaranteed, it's okay to just do what we can do while we're here and enjoy it while we have it. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder how much that might be reflected generationally with other folks um, in particular of, of young Black folks in the U.S. who have grown up alongside and are coming behind me who have seen death literally become spectacle yeah. in front of our eyes, yeah. this constant encounter with death um, via social media, whether it be you know police shootings or other things that are now just right in front of our eyes. Um, and given that we live in a culture in the U.S. that does not do death well, we like to shut it down and forget case. it yeah. in any case. Yeah. Um, I wonder if emerging out of this 2020 moment, there might be a reinterrogation of how we sit with death mm -hmm. and grief, um, not as like just something that is sad, 
that we dwell in, right? Yeah. Um, well, it's also, we don't dwell with the fact of mortality. I even, think that's it. That's right? what I'm trying to, to get yeah. at is that we live and then we die. Mm-hmm. And I think it was Toni Morrison who, who once said that like, that might be the point of it all, <laughs> right? Yeah. That, yeah. that there is something about the fact that we are mortal, that there is a definite beginning, middle and end to the arc of our lives that is at once, um, I think the word that I want to use is humbling, but it also frees, frees up so much. Yeah, It does allow us to have this generational view that like, yeah. well, I'm here and one day I'm not going to be here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and so I can do what I can do during this time. And at the same time, um, I can pass on that which came to me as seed, as blossom, and let somebody else plant it and tend to it. And that is so freeing. Um, And if I could go back and talk to a younger version of myself, I would say, it's okay to not like build the whole house. It's okay to lay a foundation yeah. and be satisfied in that. Yeah. But it's so great that you can say that to your younger self when you're still only in your thirties. <laughs> that's, that's kind of evolutionary progress in my mind. I I think it might be one of our gifts as I millennials. Think it is. I think uh. it's a gift of your, yeah, of millennials. Um, but at the same time that you say that, you and your community are really holding the great civilizational challenges and crises. Mm. There are layers. There's nuance to what you just said. Because on the one hand, there's you can do what you can do. And I think you're also saying we must rest, we must love, we must laugh. That's what I wish somebody I had been able to say to myself. I didn't I didn't have permission for that. But you're saying it. You're also saying it because I feel like you all see and you feel in your bodies, this is where it feels like an evolutionary advance to me, that you are working with an inheritance of problems is too small a word, but problems and possibilities, unrealized mm. possibilities. An inheritance of, you know, just where you can count decades, you can count centuries, right? Yeah. Um and that you are all picking that up and you are going to carry it forward in this generation. And another reason you need to stay rested is not just to be humble about the contribution you can make, but because you see that this that you are engaged in this huge work. I think one reason for that, I can only speak from the particularity of my experience, but it was witnessing so many women and my mother's generation, just be so tired Mm -hmm. and worn down. Mm -hmm. And I think it might've been a result of sort of this second wave of feminism that like pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And and the cognitive dissonance, I might argue that particularly the black women in my life who, my mom was the first in her immediate family to go to college, right? Like holding that tension of, the sort of societal expectation or pressure of you can have it all, you can have it all, you can have it all. And in a post integration space. So my mom grew up in a, in a segregated community in Southern Illinois, alongside sort of this ancestral way of knowing that particularly as a black woman 
and your labor might be exploited and you're expected to hold the entirety of your family and your community on your back. And in my less generous, more angry days where I so desperately want to pick up the phone and call her and ask a question about mothering, then knowing I can't do that. I get mad. Um, I get really, really mad about the fact that she felt that pressure to carry Mm -hmm. the weight of her community on her back. And I wonder what implications that had for her long-term health. And so I wonder if part of the shifting and prioritization of, of rest and nurture and care is because we have inherited a legacy in, in some cases of, of overwork, of, of, um, seeing the, the deathly consequences of, mm-hmm. of quote unquote productivity. Yeah. Um, and I also am carrying a curiosity of what the, the generational shift will be then for those who are coming behind us. <laughs> um, so if this might be, you know, one of the contributions of, of this moment of the work that I'm up to and so many of my colleagues are up to about reprioritizing care and healing and um, spaces for nurture and movements for social change. There's always going to be a response to that. And so I'm curious what the response to that is. If, if one day, you know, God willing, prayers up, fingers crossed, there is a time where every movement organization in the United States has a chaplain on staff who is attending to the spiritual holistic <laughs> right. well-being of a person, right? Um, I would argue every organization has somebody on staff that is doing that, that, that tender, tender work. Then what is the contribution or pushback on, on that, that will come because that will help refine it even more. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm carrying both the wisdom of the lineage of which I'm a part of and like the need for that intervention and a great deal of curiosity about like, how, how's my kid going to rebel against me <laughs> in this space? Right. Like well, what is he going to say? Right. Well, that doesn't make you special. Okay. That yeah, dynamic. Exactly. It's exactly. time. Exactly. Exactly. And how is that pushback going to push us forward? Yeah. Um, I have this theory that millennials were called to be cartographers, to be map makers at a time when, you know, institutions were crumbling, yeah. the world was shifting and it, in completely different ways. Um, And so we were creating blueprints or trying to survey the land and understand it. And that the folks who are coming behind me in Gen Z, man, they are builders. They have this like no nonsense way of cutting through things and a fierce sense of urgency um, that I both honor and respect and I worry about for them. Because I think they are facing so many existential crises at once Mm -hmm. and they haven't quite had enough of of the time or experience to know that they don't have to answer those questions all at once, but they're coming in with a sophistication and a nuance that I think is, is the stuff of building the new infrastructure, whether that be spiritual infrastructure or physical infrastructure of our time. And so I'm excited to see.
after a short break, more with Reverend Jen Bailey. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, in a moment in which so many of us are pondering what the past year has planted in us and who we will be moving forward, I'm with Reverend Jennifer Bailey. She is a leader and innovator in creating spiritual sustainability and community for changemakers and faith leaders and activists engaged in the long-haul work of generative social transformation. Jen is taking the conversational lead here as part of an ongoing cross-generational friendship she and I began years ago. I want to talk to you about what we think of the role of our sacred wisdom traditions mm-hmm. in this particular moment of rupture and what they might offer us in this season um, by way of sp- I mean, we can call it spiritual technology. We can just call it ways of being and knowing. Mm. Because when I um, turn on the news or scroll through my timeline on my phone, I see a lot of brokenhearted people mm-hmm. who are being attracted to ideologies as new theologies and ways of understanding mm-hmm. themselves in the world. And I can't help but think that these traditions that have been around for centuries and millennia might have something to say to us about what it means to be together. Yeah. Cause I think that is the great question of the 21st century yeah. is yeah. how, how we are together. Yeah, absolutely. I, you may have heard me say this. I mean, I think the questions that I started pursuing in my work are, are these ancient questions of what does it mean to be human and how do we want to live and who will we be to each other and I think our great traditions arose to address those questions. Um, they're universal human questions. And I, you know, I, this is just another way to say what you just said to me in the 21st century. The question of what it means to be human is inextricable from the question of who we will be to each other. Mm. And I think how we, how we meet that question is, is really going to be the difference between whether we find ways to flourish or or just survive. And what's been so present for me in this last year in particular is is how I'm I'm just feeling so clearly that words and notions and approaches um, that only exist in religious tradition are exactly what people are wanting to talk about and you know mm. approach like, redemption mm-hmm. and repair and lamentation right i mean when you said we don't know how to accept mortality we don't know how to to work with death we don't know how to live with our grief but but walk into a future right yeah forgiveness and atonement repentance is another one yeah there's just the language we have for this uh, comes from these places 
these, these repositories, this part of the human enterprise, where we have been asking and asking across generations who God might be, and, and, and that's a way of asking who we are and, and what we pay homage to and what really matters and who, who we'll be to each other. And even the language of mindfulness, right? Yeah. It's really fascinating having started with a show called Speaking of Faith near the turn of the century. And that was a hard sell. And finding that we come kind of full circle in my lifetime, not to an embrace of the forms of the tradition with which I grew up or even with which Mm. you grew up, but of these, of the heart of, of these aspects of the heart of it. Yeah. It's almost like there's been this, um, this moment of recognizing the challenges before us can't just be legislated out of, they can't just be um, tended to with these other facets of civic life that we've leaned so heavily on that part of what is before us are spiritual questions, Mm -hmm. are questions, as you're saying, that go back to the essence of, of being human. And I wonder as somebody who, who is clergy in a, in a Christian tradition about my role generationally of excavating, of composting the best of what we know about our traditions and, and also leading people through a healing process, recognizing that those institutions have also caused a great deal of hurt and harm, particularly for younger folks. And so it's been so powerful to me to see this move of folks seeking to recover these old ways of knowing and being, whether it be like the young people I know who build ritual altars as part of their social justice practice, um, or folks who are, are asking these questions about what it looks like to repair after harm and in a way that doesn't center punishment, (laughs) doesn't center a particular sort of carceral understanding of, of rupture and repair. And that's what gets me excited and leads me into a space of what I think about as like radical hope, rooted hope, hope that is not like detached from (laughs) the present reality and challenges before us. But I see these promises on the horizon of, of folks who are asking these big questions, even if that is not the narrative that is most dominant or loudest. It's the it's the one that I see as people are considering yeah. the question of what is what wants to emerge in this season and what is already blooming beautifully. There's a lot of focus, I think, on what is dysfunctional or yeah. what is not working or what is tearing us apart. Yeah. You're talking um, to me, a journalist. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm aware of that. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And if we quiet down and listen and look long enough, I think we can see these seedlings, not just growing, but flourishing in this moment as we ask these big questions. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, exploring belonging and healing in the world ahead in cross-generational friendship with Reverend Jen Bailey. 
we've been in a dialogue with uh, and in relationship with civil rights elders, and we've been in relationship with some of the same ones, Ruby Sales. I mean, the civil rights movement, of course, had this incredible spiritual ground. Mm-hmm. But the thrust of those movements in the 60s and 70s was the accomplishments that we look back on were secular, right? They were they were the passage of laws. And I and I feel like even that generation of civil rights leaders were people of their time, right? And so mm-hmm. there was really this faith. And I think that's I think that's an accurate word that if you change the laws, you would change the society. And and also I've heard so many stories, and I'm sure you have too, of mm. the spiritual depletion that came after those years of the peak of the movements. And when I watch you and your uh, I actually do like this Cold War word, your comrades, <laughs> your your community. Um, I feel like you are really offering a corrective. Um, whether you just kind of were born knowing this or whether it was passed on consciously, you're picking up that experience. And, of course, there was so much good that came in those communities and in those people and in those movements. It's kind of like what you said to me a minute ago about you know, how will the kids, how will the people coming after you both push back on and improve on what you're doing? And I, I, I actually see you doing that so beautifully and not in a spirit of we're going to get this better, but actually in a spirit of reverence for yeah. those elders and all that was carried and all that was created and sort of, sort of insisting that that while the work is important, the exhaustion is it cannot cannot be expected, can't cannot be necessary. Yeah. I think it's a we we carry a great deal of reverence for our elders and mm-hmm. enough respect for them to see them as the complete human beings they are. Yeah. I think there's this way in which we talk about relationships with elders that we sort of default to almost like this, this elevation to sainthood of elders that really does a disservice to seeing their full humanity and the places where they got it wrong, right? Or um, the spaces where we might push them a little bit further and they're thinking around, around issues that they just hadn't considered. And I think part of what I have been reflecting on lately is that those elders from the Southern Freedom Movement were able to diagnose the the issues and challenges before them with the tools they had. And just in the same way that medical technology has advanced dramatically over the past 50 or 60 years, so too, I think our lens towards evaluating what's at the heart of the the challenges before us, the the heart of these moments of rupture, and the possibility of repair, the technologies are simply different. And so the viewpoint is different. And so it may be that we are looking at the same long-term disease, but that we have a new set of tools to evaluate some of the, the symptoms. And so I say all that to say, as I think about Um, the relationships that I have been able to forge with elders, both within my faith tradition and outside Mm -hmm. and friendships that I've been able to form. Um, There's just been this great deal of 
acknowledgement when you ask people and see them as human, right? Yeah. And and ask them the deep questions and probe and and push in a deeply respectful way of the places where folks feel like they got it wrong or they couldn't quite see because they just didn't have this the the lens to see. Um, and so I think this this pattern of of the need for rest and renewal and community and care and pause, um, not as a way of deflecting from the challenges before us, yeah. but as, as an integral part of the work of what it means to stay in it. Because I think they did see what burnout did, even though they might yeah. not have called it burnout at the time, they yeah. did see the limitations of the tools that they had yeah. um, and the exhaustion and the heart attacks, right? The the addiction that emerged out of those spaces because there just weren't the same type of tools to cope. I remember John Lewis saying to me, you know, we we created the beloved community among ourselves, right? Within Mm. the movement, we were the beloved community. Um, And that was also cross-racial community. I really do believe that, as you say, with the tools, with also just the things we're starting to understand about how our brains work, I mean, you know, that equation of change a law, change the society does not contain a sophisticated understanding of the human condition right. or what we know from neuroscience now. I mean, how do you really change habits and how, and how much we're walking around with that's unreflected, that's unselfconscious? They didn't know that. And I really feel like the audacious uh, possibility of this century that, again, like, you know, at best— you will stand on my shoulders every once in a while and I won't see it. I won't get there. But is actually for creating the beloved community. I mean, that's the question, right? That's the theological way to say, I think you started this conversation with our belonging. Mm. And let's call it beloved community. And so they had the language yeah. and they started it. Yes. And we have other ways to get there. You do. Yes. Yes. And I can hear the the cynics, <laughs> the pragmatist in yeah. my ear who would say, wow, you all are having such a, a, a Pollyanna-ish conversation about beloved community. Don't you know that white supremacy is on the rise? And don't you yeah. know X, Y, and Z? Um, and I hear that. And to those folks, I would say, what I can just hear the church mother saying to me as a young girl in the kitchen of our church, whenever I would complain about something, which is baby, just keep living, baby, yeah. just keep living. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. And that like, you know, coming out of the mouths of, of women who were born in the great depression, right. Who saw so much and who faced so much. And many of whom lived through the horrors of Jim and Jane Crow yeah. that, that impulse to just keep living is actually revolutionary, it's right? Revolutionary. In a world that would like tear you down or kill you, just you know, keep living. Yeah, I I worry about that too. I it's, I not only hear that cynic, I I that's in me too. And if whatever sounds idealistic or aspirational, what you and I also understand when we when we speak that way is that you throw your life at it. It's not an idea. Yes. It's not right. an abstraction. It's your job to make it not an abstraction. But also there was a day when I was really doubting this and challenging myself, and I opened up Patrice Culler's book, When They Call mm. You a Terrorist. Yeah. I think on the first page, 
she she refers to that discovery in our lifetime, our generation, that we are made of stardust, and she reflects on her ancestors and all that they survived and mm. suffered. And she kind of ends mm. this paragraph. It's a beautiful paragraph. She says, what could they be? But what could they have been but stardust to accomplish all of that? Mm. I love that image. Mm. I'm sit with it for a I'll second. send you that passage. Yes, please. Yeah. Please do. I, I wanna I wanna hold that close. Mm-hmm. Um I wanna hold that very close. In the moments that it feels scary, and mm-hmm. the moments when it feels like we are at an end, holding on to that image of us as stardust feels like the only way um, to help us get through. So I think that is also the question of the most immediate question is how do, how we get through, how we get through this moment and how we continue to get through. I think the answer is only in community with other stardust beings. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Can we talk all the time? (laughs) (laughs) Talk as much as you want. I do want to say to you, before we finish, just what a joy it's been to watch you become a mother. Oh, I just thank you. it's so thrilling for me to watch this, even though I haven't seen you in the flesh. And I haven't seen Max in the flesh, but even from afar, I don't know. It's um it kind of just I mean, all these things we're talking about, about the passage of time and the generations and what we inherit and what we, you know, how we send others forth and what we transmit. And to watch that incarnate, <laughs> to use a religious word, <laughs> in you becoming a mother and the, the just the delight that that little boy is that just comes through pixels. It just jumps out <laughs> of the computer screen. And, yeah, and you and Ira mm. making that family together um, it's just been amazing. I it's I love that. I love actually being I told you about my I've always had elders, but to be the elder and then to have this experience um mm. is a real gift. Thank you for not minding being on the receiving end of many a, a photo text message. <laughs> <laughs> not no. minding me sharing pictures. And I remember before Max was born. You offered a blessing to our family that was around this notion of transfiguration. And I have held that so closely to me as I've begun to emerge into whatever this version of my life and personhood is. Mm -hmm. Um, Those words of comfort are are words that I have leaned into as I've seen myself be transfigured in all of these different ways. So thank you. Thank you for not minding the... uh, the overwhelming, sometimes mm-hmm. annoying, like messages about my baby. <laughs> no, no annoyance. <laughs> oh, thank you, Krista, for this time. It oh. just feels so sweet yeah. and so gentle. Blessings, and so loving. Jen, and one day yeah. I'll see you again. Yeah, one day soon. I'm gonna make it happen. Okay. It's gonna happen. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Oh, thank you.
Jen Bailey is founder and executive director of the Faith Matters Network. She also serves on the staff of Greater Bethel AME Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Her first book will be published in October 2021, and you can order it now. It's called To My Beloveds, Letters on Faith, Race, Loss, and Radical Hope. And this conversation came about in partnership with Encore.org, an organization that brings together older and younger changemakers to solve problems, bridge divides, and create a better future. A shorter version of the conversation I had with Jen was part of a video event called Co-Generate, which you can find online. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lauren Drummerhausen, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Scheck, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akavan, Padre Gotuma, Ben Cott, Gautam Shrikishin, Lily Benowitz, April Adamson, Ashley Herr, and Matt Martinez. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. The Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. And the Ford Foundation, working to strengthen democratic values, reduce poverty and injustice, promote international cooperation, and advance human achievement worldwide. On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.